Hello, and here with me today is Annabelle Kay for our Redicon. Annabelle is an employment law specialist, and today we're going to be talking about best practice uh, when you have to make redundancies. So before we get into that, Annabelle, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I founded Ironicon in 1980, so that means 40 years in and quite a lot of redundancy exercises, recessions, expansion, contraction. And I got into it at a time when employment law was a very, very tiny bit of what lawyers do, and an even smaller part, by the way, of what HR do. I can remember taking um, the idea that people might need help to big corporates, and they laughed, and they said, when would employment law ever be an issue? <laughs> Yeah, I've seen a lot of changes in employment law over the decades, but I've actually seen very little changes in the problems of implementing redundancy exercises. It's, it's interesting, people don't change, even though the wording of regulations changes quite a lot over time. So we're still back in the same old, same old of how do we do the least possible damage and yet move forward. Mm. It's never changed. So let's talk about the actual redundancy procedure. So for firms of a certain size, um, the, the, the procedure is, is quite set in stone, isn't it? There, there, there is a procedure that you have to follow a consultative procedure. But for those smaller companies, um, sort of guidelines and rules are a little less clear. Um, so what's your advice for a small business that has redundancies to make um, about doing it in a way that um, is best practice. I, I don't want to take issue with you, Paula, but okay. I often hear people say the guidelines are less clear. No, they're not. They're okay. clearer. The process is simpler. And a lot of small businesses think, oh, it's all very confusing and therefore I can't do it. And actually that often comes from people who are used to dealing with big corporates, trying to shoehorn a big corporate process onto a tiny company. And that means your advice is not clear, but it doesn't mean the process isn't clear. And I'd really like to draw that distinction. So if you're working with someone that's just got you completely turned about and you're in a month and you've no idea, they're not being clear. Yeah. The process itself is, to my mind, quite clear. If you are making more than 20 redundancies in a 90-day period, you need to enter into collective consultation. But if you are not that large, you don't have that many people, you do have a duty to consult, but it's individually. So consultation, by the way, doesn't mean announcing what we're going to do and then 24 hours later doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. That's called an announcement. A consultation is a genuine opportunity for people to have an input. And this is where things go sadly well, because I, I have small business clients going, it's not up to my staff to run the business. And I'm going, no, no, you're not asking them to run the business or decide how many salespeople you can afford, all that sort of thing. The input is about the method of selection for redundancy and the impact that has on people and ways of reducing the job losses or the impact. So you're not going to your staff going, well, I don't know how many people to have in accounts. You're going in, going, this is the nut, this is what I can afford, this is what I see as the end structure of my organisation, and this is my proposed method for getting it. And this is the bit that small business owners find really tricky because you're consulting about the method of going from A to B. 
not what A is and not necessarily what B is. Though that said, I've had four organisations in the last couple of months that as a result of consultation have actually ended up with two more people on the headcount than retained than they thought they'd need at the beginning because when everybody thought it through about who did what and what needed doing, the boss was actually slightly off. Mm. You know, so we're not perfect. We're in difficult times. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to factor in. And actually having your team say, well, but you do know nobody will be able to do that if that doesn't happen is actually really useful. So consultation is not an impediment to getting done what you want. It's actually a massive aid to doing it in a way that allows your organisation to survive. Okay. And that's the first thing I'll say to more than just a tick in the box exercise then people approach it as a tick in the box but if you don't approach it with that spirit you'd be surprised we have people spontaneously um, organizing job shares and saying you could keep both of us part-time and we'd both be happy to come back full time when things are better that's something the boss never thought of some bosses would others wouldn't we have people doing all sorts of things to make the business more resource rich when it finishes you know because we tend to focus on the day of redundancy but it's like the day of surgery isn't it the patient has to live the team who, who perform the surgery have to go home life has to go on and it often is better to have a multi-mind on it that said, the consultation doesn't mean asking your workforce to plan your business mm. for you. You know, it, it, and sometimes if it's put wrongly, the, the people can think you're, that you're asking them in three days to do what you spent three months agonising over, you know, and they'll, they'll stay up all night going, well, we could save on the stationary budget and we could, you know, and that's cool. You need to be absolutely clear that what you're consulting about is the method of selection for redundancy and how to minimise redundancies and job losses. And I would say if you want to do with redundancy with respect, if you're driving a Jaguar and you're putting people on universal credit, mm -hmm. that doesn't feel like respect. And if you're stuck into a long lease you can't get out of, and I've been there, I suggest you let everybody know that you've got to pay for that thing, whether you want to or not, because people can get very upset if you turn up to a redundancy consultation meeting in a car that's worth more than their house. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And I mean, that is a, a very, very good point about, you know, respectful redundancy. Because, um, you know, these people are going to go back on the job market. Um, and the things that are going to help them are, you know, the sense of dignity, a sense of self-esteem and self-confidence. So, you know, making people redundant is, is more than just making sure that you're doing the right thing from a HR and, and legal point of view, isn't it? Have you got any other suggestions on how, you know, the whole process can be done with respect and, and kindness, really? I think you have to take the focus off yourself. Mm. And, and, you know, I do a lot of sort of rehearsals with small business owners of what are we going to say? What are we going to write? What are you going to say in the room? And nearly all of them want to say, I, this hurts me more than this hurts you. Oh, it's terrible. I've agonised over it, blah, blah, blah. It's not about you. Now, I know it hurts you as a business owner. Trust me, I've had a lot of serious drinks with people who were on their knees after they've laid off people who've worked for them for years. I'm not 
underestimating the emotional trauma that that can involve. But I'm saying when you're with your staff and you're in consultation and when you're communicating about this, that has to go to one side. You take that to your spouse, to your consultant, to your best friend. You do not use your staff for therapy. Yeah. I absolutely don't. Because that stops you from hearing them. And they're going to want to tell you some things you don't want to hear, like they're upset. Now, you're not their therapist either. You know, you're not there to go, oh, I, I feel your pain. You know, I'm, how can I help you release your rage? You're there to consult about redundancy. But both of you can only do this if you're prepared to acknowledge that their feelings come in. And I'm sorry, the thing about being the boss is your feelings don't come into it in that meeting. They do come into it, but not in that place. It's like going to see a doctor and you say, I've got terrible pain in my back. They're going to tell me about it. My leg hurts, my elbow hurts. You know, doctors get back pain, but they don't discuss it with their patients. Mm. You know, so if you if you take yourself out of the equation, which is incredibly hard, if you're fighting to save your business, you've remortgaged your house, you kind of want to say to people, look, I know I could lose everything if this goes wrong, but this isn't this isn't the time and the space. Consultation is you laying out this is my draft plan and listening to the response. Mm. Yeah. And that could be really hard because sometimes the response is, how dare you do this to me? But very, very rarely, right? Over 40 years, I dread to think how many redundancies I've been involved in, planning, structuring, whatever. Um, it probably runs to thousands, if not tens of thousands, you know. And I can tell you that in all of that time, it's been a handful of people who have responded with anger in a consultation meeting that was structured consultation mm. if you just walk in and go do you know what you're the person we can do without that's it i've made up my mind your toes obviously you're going to get a higher ratio of hostile responses yeah yeah and i've had a few conversations recently with uh employers who were talking to me about you know, what happens after the redundancy process, after these people have left? Because they're obviously hoping that, you know, we get a vaccine, business picks up, all that sort of stuff. And we don't, we just don't know. And they're talking about setting up alumni organizations and giving people access to free training and that sort of thing. Are you seeing things like that? And do you think it's a good idea? People are trying to kind of retain a relationship. Mm. Um, I think as a substitute for going through proper consultation, it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. It depends where in the, in the process you're putting it, because you've got consultation, you've got feedback, you've got decision, you've got right of appeal, you've got all sorts of things going on. So if you're ignoring all of that and going, John, my alumni, it's not going to work yeah. because who would want to? Mm. You know? Um, I think as part of a kind of post-redundancy keeping contact, for some people it, it would be a really great idea, but you have to accept that some people don't want to know. Yeah. The other thing you have to accept is in the days of LinkedIn, everybody is an alumni of your company if they ever put that they work for you on their profile. And they are perfectly free to talk to each other about how wonderful you were or how awful you were. Mm. without you being in the dialogue at all so what we're really talking about is not you creating an alumni program because 
that exists in the world spontaneously. It's a space that people want to come to. Um, and a lot of that will depend on how you went through this process. Um, and particularly when it comes to helping people with finding other jobs, which is something a lot of small employers feel, you know, outplacement is for corporates. And mm. um, we are not in a position to do anything for people. I, I hear that a lot, you know, that would cost us another job, whatever. But simply making sure people have got the right skills to get themselves another job can be really low cost. And if you want to re-employ them, weirdly enough, helping them get another job yeah. can be, I know it's contraintuitive, but they will remember that you took care of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a good basis for getting back from you know, for a lot of employers, redundancy ends with the P45 mm. or possibly if they're unlucky, an employment tribunal, you know, yeah. or a compromise agreement, depending what they're doing. But it, it doesn't. It's part of someone's entire life, their CV, you know. And I think it's really important to have a clear redundancy process because a lot of big corporates have abused redundancies in the past. Yeah. and used it as a way of we weeding out poor performers. So there are a lot of people in corporate life who believe that anyone who's made redundant must have been a poor performer. Yeah. So, yeah, so they've muddied the water. So it's really, really important to be clear in your selection method, in your reason for redundancy letter, why redundancies came about and why you picked this person. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because my business fell off a cliff can involve selecting people for redundancy who are brilliant that it's breaking your heart to even consider letting go. And I think you need to think about that when it comes to redundancy selection letters. You know, when you've said it's you, a lot of people want to do a really stuffy letter in accordance with the matrix, you scored 11.4 points, we consulted with you, that's it, you have the right of appeal, would be quite a standard approach. I really think that is the moment to be human all the way through. And we use something called the Dole model. I don't know if you've ever come across it. No. When, when we're planning um, information and consultation and, and legal documents that really affect people, and most of them do, we use the model DOLE, D-O-L-E. So we start by getting the detail right, because you have to. Mm. You can't yeah. work on you can't go, you started in February, when in fact you started in June. You, you have to get the detail right. You have to get the overview right. What are we trying to do? We're not just trying to comply with employment law, though obviously you are. You're not just trying to save money, though obviously you are right? What is the overview? Because that will frame your message. There has to be some logic in how you communicate. You can't kind of do a hysterical, oh, it's all terrible. We've done something, but we can't tell you what, <laughs> because we're in such a state. And I've seen some consultation packs and dismissal redundancy letters that come pretty close to that, by the way. Mm. You know, it's all awful. We had to do something. We did this, you're fired that's neither respectful nor clear, nor has any overview or any logic. But the final box on that DOLE model is emotion. Mm. You have to look at what are the emotional words I'm using and, and how could I reasonably expect someone to feel if they got this letter? 
Now, no one's going to feel full of joy if you send them a redundancy selection letter, right? But a lot of the humiliation and the hurt comes from using very trite corporate language. You know, thank you for your service, wishing you all the best for the future. Yeah. Right? If you want to respect someone, most people spend hours crafting their wedding vows, don't they? Hours crafting their CV. And the person who's about to stack them might give it three minutes editing the text of that letter. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm not saying every letter has to be unique, but you, you have to remember you're writing to a real person. But what you don't put in that letter ever is an I'm, I'm really, really upset. Mm. You know, because that's like, really? You think you're upset? What about me? Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, if you model your communication like that, then you've got some chance of making an alumni work. And of course, that has to come from the heart because people, we're like dogs, we sense falseness, right? Yeah, so if it's just about recruiting, you know, saving recruitment fees in the future, then it's, yeah. Yeah, and if your boss has always been evil and didn't care for you, a really mushy, mushy, fluffy, fluffy letter creates a false note. So we always try to move heaven and earth to make the, the communication sound like the boss, but the boss on a good day, yeah. you know, not the boss on a bad day. We those letters we do as drafts and we shred them, don't we? You know, the therapy draft, I call it. Um, because obviously if you're not a fluffy, mushy person and you suddenly start sending out letters covered in hearts and rabbits, people are going to think you're on something, you know? Um, and if you are, you might have to dial it back a bit, you know, cause yeah. Um, I don't mean to be sexist about this, but some female bosses wrap a core of steel with a kind of fluffy, muffy exterior. And that can upset people when you're firing them. Yeah. You know, you don't have to do it in pink mules. <laughs> you know, it has to be done from a place of stillness um, and openness. And in that sense, there's a slight Zen element to it. So when we're, when we're planning it, you have to create the stillness because they're going into motion aren't they mm. Mm. that sound a bit weird but if you if you want not to have a massive emotional response you need not to put a massive emotional push in there yes yeah. right but equally you don't want to be cold yeah. and a lot of people by the way write redundancy letters i used to view a lot we used to do claimant work years ago i couldn't understand the point of a redundancy letter is to explain why there's a need for redundancy confirm what the method of selection was. You can always do that by an attachment and how exactly that person fell in that process, mm. right? Not we had a process and it was you. And almost all the employment tribunals I've ever been involved with have been triggered by a combination of a lack of respect and no one understanding that letter, mm. right? Because when it's not properly explained, think about it, it looks like shocking. We feel the same in the social media world, don't we? If something happens and nobody knows why, I'll give it 20 seconds for someone thinking it's a conspiracy to do this yeah. or that. You know, so if you don't want people to think, well, it was all really a sneaky way of getting rid of me, you have, you have to get them to see the steps. They're not going to like it. Nobody likes being fired, right? But there's a world's difference for being fired because you suspect they never really liked you and this is payback. And being fired because you understand how the process resulted in you. Yeah. And, and obviously knowing that and knowing it's not personal is gonna make you feel more confident about approaching your next potential employer, isn't it? 
Yeah, and if, if you're, you had criteria that were performance-based, and this is the other problem with small businesses, when you're using some kind of judgment as opposed to data, so data would be, is always late because that's subjective. You've got the records, right? Mm -hmm. A judgment is there's two people on my team and I think that one's the strongest, so that's the one I'm going to keep. Mm -hmm. When you're using a judgment, you really need to, to, first of all, go find data to support that. I don't mean to support your argument that A was better than B. I mean, data to measure performance on. Yeah. And a lot of organizations don't have much. But also, if it's just your judgment, is there anyone else's judgment you could call upon to? Because as the boss, you could end up designing the criteria, ranking people against those criteria, making the decision to dismiss, and then where's the right of appeal? Where's the fairness? Mm. Now, many of bosses, and I've been one for 40 years, we suffer from the delusion that what we think is objectively correct. This is because we're small business owners and we don't actually have anyone to tell us, don't be daft, that's not how it works. Mm. So you need to be very careful to get as many bits of data in there as you can. And if there are other judgments, supervisors, whatever, as the ultimate business boss, the best thing for you to be is the right of appeal not the decision maker, if you've got enough people to mm. do that, so that you're the person taking the overview, was it done properly? It's not always possible because sometimes there's only you, you, you and you, you know, but you, you do need to try to have something that isn't, I just think Fred's better than Susan, because you open up all the, then what I call the isms, the equality issues, was Susan worse because Susan had kids? Was Susan worse because she was a woman? Was Susan worse because Susan was black, disabled, what? As yeah. soon as you step into that space, you'll find yourself spending more money on legal fees than you actually saved in payroll. Yeah. And understandably, women tend to think, did you select me because of my family commitments? Black people tend to think, well, hang on a minute, a lot of black people get victimised in the workplace. I always trusted you, but are you, are you starting? So you, you have to be really clear what your basis is because that sets up a lack of trust in you in the individual. They're never going to want to be in your alumni if they suspect mm. that's going on. And I also urge people, if you've got a workforce that's 50% female, 20% Asian, whatever it is, look at your draft outcome of who's being selected to go and who's being selected to say, is it out of line? with the demographics of your workforce as it is now. Have you actually arrived at a set of criteria that does result in all the women being fired and the men kept or all the Asians being fired and the white people kept? This is indicative normally that there's something very wrong with your method of selection. If your method of selection results in a, a disproportionate effect on one group or another you really need to have that double and quadruple check by someone who knows what they're doing okay but it's an easy test you can do for free you know so if your workforce mixed up like this now and at the end of it it's mixed up very differently you may be um accidentally discriminating by using criteria that have a discriminatory effect Mm. even if you yourself have the purest of intentions. And when you start down that road, your alumni 
is going to be monocultural and therefore when you go to re-recruit you're going to have a monocultural base so be careful yeah yeah um it has long-term consequences and i know there are some people even today who think all this equality stuff is nonsense um, and honestly they do i speak to them all the time behind closed doors will say mm. that and i would say Regardless of the fairness or the social issues, if your workforce don't look like your customer base, you go upon them. You know, um, think of it as enlightened self-interest. And you, you obviously you need to comply with the law. Obviously, there are social issues about having you also weaken your organisation if you've just got one point of view. But if at the end of the day that's not good enough for you, remember that lots of people won't shop with you won't do business with you if people like them are not obviously in the organization yeah, yeah. and if you want to recover your business rapidly you do not want to exclude whole communities who might spend money with you so to be selfish equality is a bottom line issue it's not just a moral or a legal issue yeah very true so finally the people who were left behind the survivors <laughs> Um, what's your advice for employers or indeed are they actually interested in your experience in, in sort of moving forward to a, a better workplace? Most employers get this bit totally wrong. They kind of heave a sigh of relief when the P45s appeals and our tribunals are finished and that's it. And my experience is the best of your employees that you retain will be out the door in six months if that's mm -hmm. all you do. Right, and there are reasons for that. First of all, you normally expect the same work to the same standard, same quantity of work to the same quality of work with a reduced workforce. This is daft, right? People who were good don't need that kind of hassle. And the people who are rubbish, by the way, um, were never gonna work that hard in the first place. So you're, you're creating a filter where the best people are deeply incentivized to leave because they're the ones picking up the shortfall because they're conscientious and they worry. The people who don't worry are not bothered anyway. As yeah. long as they get paid, they're gonna carry on. So you're, you're making a, a, a next wave. So as soon as business picks up, as soon as the economy picks up, those people are out of there. So to avoid that, you need to recognize that A, they feel quite guilty that they survived the cut and their colleagues didn't, if they're conscientious people, mm. right? B, they cannot do the same work. You need to restructure their jobs. You need to listen to them. If they come in and say, well, we can no longer do what we did before, they're probably right. Yeah. And if you actually want the same amount of work at the same quantity from a reduced workforce, you just can't have it. Unless you've also taken the time to introduce changed working methods that are effective. But even changed working methods take 90 to 120 days to work because you've got to teach people, they'll be slower at the new method. You know, it's not an instant fix. So you need a transition plan for how the retained workforce is going to get to make it work in a new organization. And again, I would suggest to you that that should be consultative. Now, mm. I don't mean management and union at Mills consultative, you know, but I mean the people who are doing the job, if you ask them, well, what takes you the most time? What holds you up? What's, you'd be amazed how many jobs are actually designed to take forever for no good reason. Mm. Processes that are just 
been around for 50 years and they're utterly ridiculous, you know. I mean, I, I'm dealing with a lot of businesses at the moment who are on manually doing things that we actually automated in the 80s. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because the boss goes, that's always worked. But of course, the productivity levels you need from a modern workforce do not correlate to the 80s, do they? Mm -hmm. you know, what was acceptable to do in a day in the 80s you probably get five for today in a lot of jobs so you, you need to look at that and you need to start looking at ways to streamline the work because when you grow if you bring back your old people to new and more efficient methods everybody's happy aren't they yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they might think oh hang on a minute this wasn't what i left but you need to sort that out in the recruitment process which by the way you should re-recruiting people who worked for you a year ago or five years ago should be as seriously undertaken as new recruits because mm -hmm. they will imagine they know how you work and they probably don't if you've taken my advice and you've upped that game as well so you need to be very clear because maybe the reason they loved working for you was they like the old manual system yeah yeah, they like to be able to slow pace, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can't offer that to them anymore. And therefore, you need to be careful with your alumni programme that you align it with where you're going, not where you were. Yeah. And it's easier said than done. I mean, that's a nice sentence, but that's probably six weeks serious thought. Yeah, yeah. I don't I'm broken, you get time off for lunch and things, but, you know, it, it's... <laughs> um, it's a big thought because like all things that are simple, it has to be clear and it has to be aligned. Yes. Um, a lot of what you said today is about communication, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if you work with people, you kind of have to communicate with them. And it's the most difficult thing as a small business owner and leader and manager because everybody you work with is often your subordinate. Mm. So they can't tell you, what? Say that again, that was rubbish. Or I can't believe you're about to go out and say that to your workforce. <laughs> Are you really, really sure yeah. uh, that that's, what, that's the way you want to say it? So we don't all have the kind of management development skills programs that if you work for a big corporate and you were a bit of a testy supervisor, they'd go, look, go on this course, this is how you deal with that. And then you might get to middle manager and they go on this course, this is how you deal with that. We just learn on the job, but we have to recognize that most of us don't learn, learn on the job about redundancies because we don't do them that often. We are amateurs yeah. stepping into a space that requires a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge and I don't want to be mean, but a lot of HR consultants don't have that skill and knowledge either because HR consultant includes people who are great at recruitment, people who can do organisational development. The label HR consultant doesn't necessarily mean experienced and seasoned with redundancy. Yeah. Any yeah. more than all medical people treat the same conditions, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Development and sort of learning it's very different to this yeah and i've worked with hr people in big corporates who've taken the methods we applied in their organization went out as a consultant and offered it bless and that was fine until it went wrong because they didn't know why it was done the way it was done because they weren't in at the meetings when the why was happening they just took the thing as a thing and of course it's like learning to drive in the country and adopting those methods in london in the russia yeah right 
Or if you're a Londoner doing the other thing and you have to not get a ticket in the country for driving like a maniac because that's just what everyone does where you are. You know, you have to understand the different environments require different responses. So it's tough on small businesses because the small business owner is also dealing with feeling everything they've worked for has just gone turn in a handbasket. Yeah, I mean... If they don't get this right, there may be no business you know, um, tired and exhausted. I don't want to depress anyone, but that's the condition that most of the people I work with are in when they're trying to attempt this task. Mm. You know, and the last thing they need is to tick the box bunny going, oh, well, here's a checklist. Just do, 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 do. Because it's too much. This is people's hearts and souls, isn't it? As they're living their life, their mm. business and their identity. And a lot of small business owners' identity is wrapped up in being, I'm a good member of the community, I'm a good boss, people can come to me, people trust me, and this doesn't feel like something that's congruent with that, does it? No, no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, what we're going through at the moment is tough for everybody. So I think finding these, these ideas of best practice suits both sides, doesn't it? And because it's, it's like, if you like, a bad thing to do. No one wants to walk into a, a loyal and long-serving workforce and find it. We make the mistake of small business owners of doing it badly. Because we don't want to do it. We kind of want to run in and go, you're all fine, right, I'm gone, not my bad. Mm. That's our emotional approach to it. I'm not saying we actually do it. I've seen some things that are pretty close to that. <laughs> um, but just because you're doing a thing that hurts doesn't mean you need to do it hurtfully. You yeah. actually need to take double, triple effort to do this from a place of calm and a place of openness, even though what you take in may be painful to you. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. That's what being the boss is. You take the first hit. Yeah. And it is awful. We all love the good bits, have a promotion, have a pay rise. Yeah, you know, none of us love the bad bits. But the bad bits, the only bit I do, by the way, I don't think I've ever, for a client, given anyone a pay rise or anything nice. You know, if you see my name on the meeting, you know where we're going. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. There's lots to think about there, about best practice, about how to communicate well with other people, people that, um, you know, both people who leave you and the people that, that are remaining with you. So thank you very much today Annabelle You're welcome and I'm just sorry that we're having to do all this again you know mm. um I think it's my fourth time around with major systemic changes first time I've had to do it wearing a mask <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay that's new but it's just heartbreaking for everyone but I, I will say this to sum up though all, every time we've been through this, the businesses that hesitated the longest made the most cuts in the end really Right. It is better to cut early and then recover than it is to hang on, hang on, hang on, and then literally not be able to make payroll, not be able to. And, you know, there are people going there now. And as an employee, that might be bewildering. But if you leave it too late, you won't be able to afford the redundancy payments and people will have to wait three months, six months to get that from the insolvency fund. And that's not a situation. And that doesn't help. So by hanging on, you're not always being kind yeah right um, because actually if you could let someone go with a check today or wait in three months for a check and i know it makes things worse because the more people you fire the more people are fired the more frightened everybody is but you have to keep your organization 
you have to keep your life preserver going, your life raft, because mm. you're not going to re-employ anybody if you go bust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's terribly, terribly hard. And I've had many a stiff drink with many a business owner at the end of this process, and it hasn't stopped breaking my heart. Mm. But I don't tell them that when we're having the drink any more than I think they should tell their staff that when they're doing their thing. It is heartbreaking. It's everybody's efforts and achievements. But if you want your business to live, you have to take action when it's needed.